0: Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, the only thing in the best shape of its life is apparently the preseason injury bug. Jeff Dini from Pro Football Focus joins me to explore why Jimmy Ward stopped to seemingly contemplate the marvels of nuclear physics while in coverage, and friend of the pod, Joe McAtee, the editor of Turf Show Times for SB Nation, comes on the show to preview the Los Angeles Rams' 2018 season and answer all the burning questions that will define the Rams' 2018 season. But first, the rundown of the news and a breakdown of the 49ers' first preseason game with Pro Football Focus is Jeff Deaney. Jeff Deeney, welcome back to the Better Rivals Podcast. So how you doing?
1: Doing pretty well. Thanks for having me back.
0: All right, so let's talk really quickly about the rundown. First up, of course, the Niners played the injury bowl versus the Cowboys. You've got some key injuries. George Kittle, shoulder separation, which is better than I thought it would be. I thought he broke his collarbone, Matt Breida shoulder separation, Solomon Thomas concussion, Gary concussion. Uh, and then later on in the week, Jarek McKinnon has of course a calf strain. Do any of those injuries concern you?
1: Uh, I mean, I think it sounds like all of them are going to be back by week one. I think the big question is, you know, especially like, you know, Breida and Kittle, are they going to be a hundred percent? Um, week one is the big question, but I think they seem like they dodge a bullet on a few of these, especially, uh, you mentioned Kittle and Breida, and then McKinnon had an MRI earlier in the week, and that just came out to be a calf strain, luckily. So I think as much as, as bad as the injuries were in, on Thursday night and in, in practice, that uh, for the most part, they dodged a serious ball. There wasn't any like big season-ending injuring, season, injury, season ending injuries or something that was going to keep somebody out you know, several weeks into the season.
0: So, of course, Shanahan said that it's a fine balance, right? You On the one hand, you want to put them all in bubble wrap, but on the other hand, you know you need to practice and you need to get some chemistry going. Do you think that, that uh, Kittle and Brita will be in any way, shape, or form hindered by not being able to play these other two meaningless games?
1: I, I don't think so. I mean, they both played quite a bit last year. I think obviously you saw towards the end of the season, the, the the chemistry that Kittle and Garoppolo had together. So, I mean, I don't think that's an issue. Um, I think my only concern is, you know, if, you know even if they're back week one, it might only be 70-80% instead of 100. I think that's my big concern. But as far as the chemistry or getting reps, I don't think that's a big deal.
0: I mean, honestly, I, I wouldn't be mad if they held him out against the Vikings and just said, you know what, we'll take the L uh, and call it a day. it's, it's, week yeah, no, one. it's it a good point. Yeah. Uh, Alright, so Derek McKinnon, of course, is a cap strain that Now, and the Niners went out and signed Alfred Morris as a stopgap. Is this anything more than doing Alfred Morris a favor and getting him some game tape so he can latch on with another team, or does he have a legit shot to make this roster?
1: You know, that's a really good question. I think kind of my answer is probably somewhere in between there. I mean, I think if you know, they were signing some, you know, under after free agent off the street, you know, then you're thinking, okay, well, he's just coming in to get some, some practice reps and take some of the reps late in the games. at are running back for some of these other guys. But um, if you're bringing Morrison, you got to think he's got at least a somewhat legitimate chance to make the roster. Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, as a guy, obviously tore it up when Shanahan was the offensive coordinator in Washington, I think about 2,900 yards rushing the two year Shanahan was there. Um, but I mean, you know, it's a really strong runner. He's not going to give you a lot in the, you know, in the passing game, either as a receiver or in pass protection. Um, you know, the interesting thing is his r- yards per carry has kind of been, you know, declining his entire career. And then, you know, last year when he stepped in for Ezekiel Elliott, he actually averaged 40.8 yards a carry, uh, 3.3 after contact, which was fourth best in the league last year. So, um, it'll be interesting to see what he has left. And then, you know, obviously that, that running back mix is one of kind of the interesting roster stories as it was with you know Raheem Mostert and Joe Williams there in that 3-4 spot so you know and we kind of talked about this a little bit last week on the podcast how you know Reuben Foster's suspension might kind of play into this where you know Foster doesn't count on the roster the first two weeks that might give him an opportunity to kind of carry a fourth half back and now you're throwing Alfred Morrison in the mix so if you know McKinnon and Breed if one of those two maybe are not healthy enough to go week one they still might keep a fourth running back and then the question is is that yeah, out of you know Mostert, Morris and Williams, which two of those guys would survive.
0: Well, you know, we had George on a few weeks ago and we talked about, you know, kind of a, above replacement level and replacement replacement level is not an average player. It really is like an off the street player. And right. when you think about it, this is the definition of really replacement level, Alfred Morris was a street free agent at this point. He's clearly available this late in camp. If someone like Alfred Morris, who is literally replacement level off the street, didn't have a team this far in a training camp, if he's a running back that is able to make the squad, presuming that you maybe have an injury up near the top, what does that really say about Mostert and Williams? Is Williams really, I mean, he's a fourth-round pick, sure he's got that pedigree, but if someone like Alfred Morris off the street, very different type of back, not as speedy as Shanahan would like them, is, does that say more about Williams and Mostert than it says about, uh, you know, kind of Alfred Morris and really the running back position on the Niners as a whole?
1: No, I mean, that's a really good point. I think it's interesting, like you mentioned, Morris is really a completely different type of back than these other four you see on the roster. And, you know, I mean, I think we've seen some little flashes with Williams here and there, Um, you know, but I think it's the difficulty is you know, when you're a young player and you're a backup, especially where you're like the third or fourth running back on the team and you're not contributing really much on special teams at all, I mean, you're at a really big disadvantage to make the roster. I think that's where uh, you look at between, you know, Moster and Williams. Moster was a stud as a gunner on special teams last year. And so, I mean, I think, you know, and then you look at Thursday night, really Moster was the better ball carrier of the two on offense too. So, I mean, I think, you know, Williams still got an uphill fight to make the 53 before Morris got here. And then like you said, if, if Morris is the type of guy who can contend and beat him out, that's not really a good sign for Williams.
0: Yeah. You know, they did have some complementary, some, some alternating series in the preseason game. There was actually a couple of plays where they both ran the exact same play. They'd run a, a crack toss and, and mm-hmm. most and Williams both ran the exact same play out of different formations, but it, they, the way they attacked the edge was a little different. I think that that Mostert attacked the edge a little bit better. But all in all, the, it was really the, the blocking on that front end that determined whether or not Williams gained a bunch of yards or Mostert gained a bunch of yards. Because Mostert only had one guy to beat, and then he was able to turn the corner and get you know somewhere near seven or eight yards. Williams had a bunch of dudes in his face immediately. So you know, I think if you're looking at the performance of those two backs, one of the knocks on Joe Williams was he only gets what the line blocks for him. He doesn't really produce more than what's there. And given especially the right side of the offensive line, which is where both the crack tosses were run, I wonder if the, if maybe Shanahan's not looking for a back that can produce and create more than what the line blocks for him, since that's something Shanahan's alluded to is valuable in a back
1: yeah, I mean look like, you look at Thursday night and I don't think really any of the running backs had a lot of space to run. I mean if they combined for for ninety eight yards and twenty six carries, which is three point eight yards a carry, the average is a unit. 4.2 yards a carry after contact so doing the math there on average they were getting hit behind the line of scrimmage i guess four tenths of a yard behind the line of scrimmage on average which is not good so i mean i think that's one thing we're going to look at you know later in the preseason is if the run blocking starts getting a little better
0: all right so let's dig a little bit deeper into the the game and the performances in the game and we like to do a little segment on the podcast called arrow up arrow down Basically, this is players that are performing better than expected or players that are not living up to their billing. The preseason is really all about players getting snaps and where they get snaps and also how they perform individually. You're not looking for game planning tendencies or anything like that. You're really looking at individual player matchups and whether or not players dominate against their competition or whether or not they appear to be inferior. So that's where th- this arrow up arrow arrow down segment comes from, and let's start with a couple players that we thought were arrow up, so I've got a few. I actually don't know who your players are, Jeff, so I'm interested to know who those are. But my first player is going to be Richie James junior. Don't forget the junior uh eighty four point one total overall grade. 34 total snaps, four targets, four receptions. And I think probably his most impressive reception, despite the fact that he caught the game-winning touchdown, was the first throw that he caught from Jimmy Garoppolo because it was a little behind him and he had to adjust his body, make the catch, immediately get hit, fall backwards, and still picked up the first down. I think it's going to be really difficult for the Niners to try to cut him and sash him on the practice squad. I think he's definitely someone who's going to be the sixth wide receiver.
1: No, I I fully agree. And he was actually number one on my list too. And he was, as far as PFF goes, he had our top grade on offense, like you mentioned, 84.1. And to give a grain of salt on our preseason grades, I mean, I think you had to look at two things. One is a lot of these guys are playing a fraction of the game. So there's, you know, a pretty small sample size in a lot of cases where, you know, if you're only playing 15 snaps or one really, really good player, one really bad one can totally screw your grade. Um, and then the second thing is, we don't adjust so much for you know the level of competition against you. So some of these guys who might have been tearing up in the fourth quarter and end up getting a high grade, you have to realize it's against guys who might not be in the league in about three or four weeks. But I mean, James Case, he kind of played you know he played early. You know, like I said, he caught a pass from Garoppolo. He scored the winning touchdown at the buzzer. I um, said top grade on offense. You know, he's a guy who looked good in rookie rookie camp. He's looked good in training camp. The one day I was there, he looked good. I mean, I. Like you said, I don't think he's a guy you can stash on the practice squad. Someone else, some other team is going to grab him. So, um, I mean, if I was projecting the 53 man roster, he'd definitely be on there as a six wide receiver. He looked really good on Thursday night.
0: Look, I don't know why you're trying to bring us down here. I'm here for people beating up on players that will be working at FedEx in like two months. All right. That's, <laughs> this is the kind of stuff we're here for. Um, but when we get back to the next player, let's see if we can go two for two. Uh, cause my next player is actually Ronald Blair had 40 snaps, 76.4 overall grade. And he played, you know, he didn't come in until I think the second quarter, but he showed his athleticism on tape. He's another high P-Spark athlete. He had some really good stunts, had a very, very good pressure grade, and especially on the edge where we're a little banged up. And, you know, Julian Taylor, of course, is, it was the story leading up to the week. He proved that he can provide some quality snaps at a position of need along the defensive line. And he fits the athletic profile the Niners are going after. So I thought he had a generally you know, pretty good game. Good enough to get arrow up in game one.
1: No, fully agree. I mean, I think he had ended up with a seventy-sixth grade on our site. He had three pressures, he had a couple run stops. Um, and like I said, he's one of those guys who's he's very versatile can play the end. Um, you know, especially you look at Eric Armstead's a guy who you know, I think they're kinda of hoping you can play that, you know, the big end position and he's out for a while. Um, but definitely Blair and Julian Thomas, who I mean, I think obviously kind of got rave reviews on Thursday night or two guys uh, that I think can contribute later in the year at that spot.
0: All right. So uh, I've got one more and that's Terrell Williams, not to be confused with Daryl Williams, Jr. Uh, That guy's on the offensive line. Uh, Terrell Williams is a defensive back. He played more of the Joukowsky tart role in the box as a safety. Played primarily in the second half, only 22 snaps. But his very, very first snap, he got a pass breakup. He looked very active, kind of patrolling the middle of the field. Uh, He was the robber on that pass breakup. And he played close to the line, had a couple of good, uh, you know, nose on the ball tackles over the course of the end of the game. This is probably someone that I, I don't know if they're making the team necessarily. I don't know that they're, good enough to press for uh, one of those safety slots. But given the people that I'm going to have here and narrow down, I wouldn't say it's, it's an extreme. Uh, it's not out of the realm of possibility that he makes the roster.
1: Yeah, I mean, he, he was actually one of the guys on my list as well. I mean, really big guys, like six four, I think probably like 210 or so. Um, but you said 22 snaps. I think, I think we're all in the second half. Um, got targeted twice past breakups, both times the one you mentioned. And I think he broke up the Hail Mary at the end of the game, um, blitzed once and got a pressure. Um, and he ended up the grade 92.1 in our side, like I said, again, against the backups in the second half, but that was the top grade on the team. So, um, definitely arrow up for him.
0: Yeah. He's a player that was out of Houston and the Niners, of course, were going to be practicing in Houston and, and that six, four safety. I mean, the, the Niners are indeed targeting length at the defensive back position, and, and that's a player that fits their mold. And if he can continue to perform, I think he's got a, a leg up. Again, it's going to be one of those roster number situations where I don't know that they have, if we're talking about them keeping maybe an extra running back, maybe an extra tight end of Kittle's not all the way back. That really is going to determine whether or not they're able to keep uh, someone like Terrell Williams on the roster. So we've got yeah. James.
1: He, I was going to say, he might be someone, you, know, you were talking about Richie James, where I don't think you could sneak him through. Williams might be a guy you might be able to, Take a risk and, and sneak him on the practice squad if you don't got room for him on the fifty three.
0: Did you have anyone else on your arrow up list between James Blair and Williams?
1: Um, the only other guy, and I'm going to screw this up, but Peta Ipanu. I was close.
0: Oh man, I was you, good. <laughs> you are within. You're, you're you're already. I mean, you're a friend of the pod already. But the fact that you messed up his name means that you are firmly within the better rivals margin of error. That is a name I, we just call him Peta T because we can't say his last name uh, he's Her, just p t
1: yeah i literally like questioned whether to put him on the list i knew if i had to say him on the right on this show that i was going to blow it so and sure enough but Ta- um, Moepenu
0: yeah, is my guest Tao mo a
1: anyway uh p to t uh i mean he only played 13 snaps um but i mean had an 85.3 grade um only had four snaps against a run but three run stops so um also had a quarterback pressure, looked good in limited time, um, and obviously, that you know the Leo Sam spot is you know there there's pass rush snaps to be had if you can be an effective pass rusher. So um, it'll be interesting to see how much time he gets in the next few games and how effective he can be.
0: Yeah, when you when you look at Eli Harold, the guy that P2T is pushing for playing time, he did not have a great game. Um, you know, he again also didn't play very well, uh, didn't play very many snaps. He only played 15 snaps uh, compared to 13 for P2T. So they basically split snaps at Sam. Sam's not the most, you know, kind of important or pressing position given the Niners are going to be in their nickel package you know, close to 60, 60% of the time. But uh, I think it would not surprise me at all to see P2T beat out Eli Harold for that Sam role.
1: No, it wouldn't surprise me me either. I think, uh, I mean, that's definitely, I think, one of the positions that's up for grabs on the defense.
0: All right, so let's get to the arrow down players, players that did not do all that well. And for me, both players are going to be in the secondary. First one is going to be Antoine Exum Jr. Despite the fact that he is on the all-name team for the better rivals, uh, he did not play very well. Now, this is someone who had a larger sample size, 45 snaps, but just had a 51.4 coverage grade. Well below average, he did not, and he played kind of free safety. He rotated out with with Reed and a couple of other players. He just did not. He, he wasn't in position often. Uh, he was a little late to the ball. Didn't seem like someone who, especially considering this is his second year in the system, did enough to stave off some of the rookies.
1: No, that's a good point. I think we were just talking about how the the secondary is really crowded with young guys, and whether you know Williams is a guy you could get on the roster. And I think. You know, Exum's another guy who's going to be a victim of the numbers. If you know, if some of these other younger rookies can come in and perform like we saw with Williams, that uh, he's going to have a hard time finding a roster spot.
0: All right, who's your next arrow down player?
1: Uh, Probably the same guy that's on your list, but I'm gonna have to go Jimmy Ward. Oh, he's not on my list. I just
0: figured you know Jimmy Ward was an obvious one because he stopped to (laughs) he stopped to contemplate nuclear physics uh, while he was covering his his player. I'm imagining literally that GIF. Of uh, Galifianakis with the numbers just floating all over his face <laughs> mid route, <laughs> while he's getting a deep bomb thrown on him. I have no idea what that guy was doing, but he um, he did not grade well. I think his grade was like 29, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was 29.6. Like I guess as an example, I'm a guy who played 19 snaps. So if you know getting beat out that bad on one play, I think really hammered his grade quite a bit. But you described what happened there much better than I could. So yeah, we'll go from there.
0: And so my, my other arrow down player is going to be another secondary player. It's going to be Tyvus Powell. 29 snaps, 48.1 coverage grade. The reason I think I bring the, the arrow down guys up specifically is because the coverage defenders are really where the Niners need to improve. And we, of course, added some talent at the top when you get to Richard Sherman and Akella Witherspoon. Obviously, we hope he takes the next step. But then you've got everything behind them. And we saw Jimmy Ward kind of, lose a little bit of focus there and not be able to to prove that he... He didn't play like a first-round pick. He just didn't. In, in one preseason game, 19 snaps, there's more to play. He's played at a higher level than that over the course of the year. But when I looked at players like Tavares Moore and Tavares McFadden, they seemed like they could play the part. Overall, Tavares McFadden, you know, undrafted free agent, played 16 snaps, again, low sample size, had a decent coverage grade. You think of Moore, also someone else who had a fairly decent grade in the time that he played. And so I think if it were up to me, I would end up cutting someone like Exum or Powell, who have been in the league for a while. We kind of know what they are. They've been there as, you know, kind of bottom of the roster placement level players and say, let's give these players that have a better athletic profile and and a bit better, you know, and, and seem to perform just as well in this preseason game I'd give him a shot, man, because you have to cycle through these coverage defenders in a way that's going to actually try to get you a, a hit.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think you know, it's funny because Powell's actually, I think, looked you know pretty decent in training camp so far, but he did struggle on Thursday night. But you make a point these guys are kind of these you know two, three-year vets who you know bounce around the league a little bit, and you you kind of seen what you're going to get from them. So I you know like opposed to the rookies that you you know you brought in like a McFadden who was an undrafted free agent or something like later picks where I think, you know, the potential is still there that, you know, it, you know you're still going to get much higher ceiling. Um, so I think, you know, if it's, if it's a close call between, you know, a Powell and, you know, a McFadden or something like that, I think they're definitely going to probably lean towards McFadden.
0: Uh, did any part of you want to put Jimmy Garoppolo on arrow down because his passes seemed errant at times?
1: Um, I mean, the only one that I think was disappointing was one. He missed Kittle over the middle. He kind of overshot him a little bit. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, my two things with Garoppolo for the preseason. One is obviously, you know, please God, don't get hurt. Um, but the second one is just maybe to hope to see a little more accuracy on the on the deep throws. I mean, you know, last year he was four of sixteen on throws twenty more yards downfield. Um, there was a drop, and then I think I think it was the Rams game last year where he had Hyde open deep and he threw him right on the money, and Hyde misjudged it so bad that. He did get his hands on, so we couldn't give him a drop PFF. But um, I think that was the one metric, I think, with Garoppolo on PFF, that where he kind of was below average last year was on the deep ball accuracy. And, and I, I think George has probably talked about this on the show before, but that's one of those metrics that kind of vary wildly from year to year. So that plus a very small sample size, which is five games, you hope there's some improvement this year, but um, would have liked to see him hit Kittle on that one over the middle.
0: All right. Any other takeaways from the 49ers' first preseason game that you uh, that you saw during the game?
1: You know, not much. Obviously, Nick Mullins looked great at the end on that last drive. I mean, you know, he's not going to take the number two job, obviously. But, you know, God forbid if one of the two quarterbacks gets hurt either in the preseason or even later in the year, it's nice to have him as an insurance policy. And then for him personally, that, you know, if he doesn't make the roster, that might give him some good film to latch on somewhere else. He Is he practice squad eligible? Because I think he is. Uh, I believe so. It's This is his second year. I'm Going off the top of my head, but uh, I would think he's a practice squad eligible eligible guy. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think you need like one or two accrued seasons to to jump to kind of eliminate you from the practice squad. And I don't know that he's got an accrued season yet, so I think that he still is, yeah. at, is eligible for the, practice the second squad.
1: year in the league. But he didn't play last year, so yeah, he'd definitely be practice squad yeah, eligible. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, I think overall uh, the the Niners, you know, they at least in preseason game one they are who we thought they were, um, and that's and that's exactly right. I think they had some some issues in coverage, and I think they're run blocking wasn't as good as they would have liked. And it just sucks that they got as injured as they did. But at the very least, we're going to put those players in bubble wrap. And hopefully we get a few more for the next game on Saturday.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, obviously, you know, the big thing with preseason, obviously, is you just want everyone to stay healthy. But uh, there are a few th- issues you kind of hope to see get ironed out as the preseason goes along.
0: All right, awesome, Jeff. Well, thanks again for coming on. And uh, maybe we'll talk next week or we'll, uh, we'll do something more in the next couple weeks. You got it any time. Next up, we continue our divisional season preview with the L.A. Rams. And we welcome friend of the pod, Joe McAtee, on to discuss the Rams and the questions that will define the Rams season in 2018. Now, over the course of the interview, you'll notice that there's a little bit of audio clipping or some popping that was unfortunately recorded on Joe's kind of source file. I tried to do as much as I could, but you'll, you'll get some of the popping. Hopefully, it's not too bad because the interview is a lot of fun and, and I think you'll enjoy it. So without further ado... Here is the interview with the editor of Turf Show Times, Joe McAtee. Joe McAtee, editor at Turf Show Times for SB Nation. Joe, how the hell are you doing, man? It's good to have you back on.
2: I'm good. But, you know, as a Rams fan, when you come to talk to 49ers fans, you have to be careful, Oscar. I love you. I love you guys. The podcast is great. The site's great. Everything's good. What's up, man?
0: Yeah, you always got to be careful, man. We, we, are, uh, we are trepidatious in the way in which we will engage over get, the next uh, over use, the next hours. so. You use words like trepidatious. See, I got to be careful. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure I made that word up. I'm 99% sure trepidation is a word, Trepida- trepidatious, not
2: so much. Trepidatious is the uh-huh. new sauce that they put on the quesadillas yeah. in North Texas.
0: <laughs> yeah, man, so let's talk about the Rams a little bit because the Rams, of course, are the, they're the Cinderella story from last year. They went from zero to to first. They went from Jeff Fisher to Sean McVay. They went basically from, you know, she's all that pre-makeover to, you know, Angelina Jolie in her prime. So what, what really is going to define the Rams season, I think is, is going to depend on a couple of key things. And that's what I want to have you here to to talk about. So first, before we even get to what the Rams are going to do, I actually want to play a little game Uh since I know that you are uh, a Harry Potter movie watcher. Ooh. And you may or may not know the Niners roster very well. Frankly, there were times where I was looking at the players in the field and constantly was thinking, who is that? Okay. We're going to play a little game called 49er or Harry Potter. <laughs> I'm going to read a last name to you, and you tell me whether or not that is a player on the 49ers roster or a character in the in the Harry Potter books. You ready? I'm ready, but I don't know that this is going to go great yeah <laughs> which which that's, means it will go great yeah that's part of the plan that's absolutely part of the plan all right name number one
2: dwelly oh no <laughs> i've already lost um what would you do would you go 40 you'd go 49ers first that's got to be 49ers
0: that is indeed 49ers okay. now see all that right. one
2: was just a guess now i'm screwed let's do it all right uh next one bagman nope um uh Harry po- that's that can't be a Harry Potter question 49ers That is a Harry Potter character. Oh, the Bagman? Yeah, yeah, Bagman. The worst. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's Bagman,
0: ever. Bagman or Bagman. I'm not sure. Uh but as Chandler Bing would say, why isn't it Phil Spider-Man? <laughs> like why is it Spider-Man? Uh all right, next up is going to be Nazocha.
2: What? This game stinks. 49ers.
0: (laughs) That is a 49er. That is indeed. He's a linebacker. All right. uh, Next up, Thomas. Harry Potter. Trick question. Both. Uh, 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 That that is both Solomon Thomas uh, and Dean Thomas, uh, who's House Gryffindor. Uh, And last one, Exum. Dante
2: Exum, right? 49ers. Antoine Exum is a 49er. Yep. But yeah, that's uh, not bad. Not bad. All you right. got most of them.
0: That's, you, right. could,
2: you could have made. Oh, no. Don't a the basketball player. No, you could have embarrassed me much more. So I appreciate you taking it easy on me. <laughs> all right. So
0: first question, let's talk about the plexiglass the, the plexiglas principle. The questions that are going to define the Rams season. Number one is going to be how far are you going to hit? Uh, how far are you going to fall and regress to the mean? The Rams as a team overall had one hell of a turnaround year. They basically went from last in the league in points scored, hashtag Jeff Fisher forever, to first in points scored. You basically have gone DVOA from close to last to first, best. It's going to be like the second biggest increase in DVOA since they've started charting since 1986. Overall, the Rams went from eh, ho-hum, don't have to worry about them, to holy hell, an offensive powerhouse. But what history has told us is that anytime a, a team makes that kind of a leap, they just generally come back down. It doesn't mean they come back down to bad. It just means that they can't continue that sustained success. So the first question I got for you, Joe, right off the bat is, how far will the Rams fall from the, from the heights that they saw in 2017?
2: So the answer is negative two. They're going to win two more games than they did last year. No, here, here's the thing. I think is p- Part of it is what's making this offseason and preseason a unique uh, bubble for Rams fans and Rams media, because number one, it's only the third year back in LA, right? They just moved over here. And so uh, the Los Angeles local media and Los Angeles specific fans who didn't really follow the Rams um, as closely as they have since they've returned or Los Angelinos who are new fans uh, don't really associate with the 14 years of losing that preceded last season. So to them, it really was just a one year issue with Jeff Fisher where they fired him, fixed everything on the team because they were always good. And so th- that combined with the scope of that improvement has by far the biggest expectations for this team in 15 years. I haven't, since we've been running Tertial Times, we haven't dealt with a season, a preseason or offseason like this ever, where people are legitimately talking about the postseason in July, in August. And how are so, you dealing uh, the, with that the, hype? Cause that's, I mean, that's the well, hype machine. The Rams are
0: yeah. the, I mean, the Rams and the Niners, honestly, both have a significant amount of hype this year. How are you dealing
2: with it? For sure. It, I mean, it's interesting. It's a, a, a part of it is just to recognize that what it does is it pushes the bar so high for what would be deemed a satisfactory season that the, the margin for that success is really, really, really thin. And so there's not much I can do to really adjust that because everybody, whether it's national media, local media or fans, is expecting this team to compete into January and potentially get to the Super Bowl. And and I don't know whether it's the Super Bowl, the NFC Championship, or where in the playoffs it would it, the threshold would be. But this team is going to have to win playoff games in order for it to come anywhere near to, to being deemed a success. The way that last year, even though they won the NFC West, you know, championship the, the division outright, they didn't win a single playoff game, and yet everybody, by and large, deemed it a success because of the scope of the turnaround. Head coach of the year, offensive player of the year, defensive player of the year. That's not going to be good enough this year. If the if the Rams had the, the one of the things I've said a lot, uh, you know, radio hits and stuff like that, is that if the Rams have the exact same season as they did last year, if they go 11-5, and five, if Jared Goff has the exact same statistical output, if we go to the playoffs and lose in the first round, Sean McVay's not going to get head coach of the year for that. Nobody's going to look at that as an improvement for Jared Goff. It will, it'll, be, it'll be a pretty spectacular failure given how big the expectations are. So what am I doing? Really, I'm just here to chronicle it and, and, and just to note that the, it is what it is. The Rams went all in on this offseason. They were really aggressive in building out the roster and, and filling the holes that they had at the expense of some draft picks that they traded away. But they did it because they have a window where if, you know, if that plexiglass principle isn't too strong, as long as they get to the playoffs, if they can make it happen, they can justify every single move by getting a couple of playoff wins and maybe even a Super Bowl victory. But that margin for success is really, really, really small.
0: Yeah, so when you look at teams that, that the Rams compare against, when you're talking about the kind of bounce they've had in DVOA, you're talking about the 2013 Chiefs. They went 9-7 and seven, wins and losses after they had that turnaround. Uh, 2017 LA Rams, of course, yet to be determined the, based on the 2018 year. 2010 Detroit, 10-6. and six. 2012 Denver, 13-3. and three. And it doesn't mean that you're going to have a bad season necessarily. It's just going to be incredibly difficult to sustain that performance over the course of another year when you've reached such high heights. So you're telling me that, that that anything less than, you know, a couple of playoff games under your belt is going to be a, a
2: disappointment in L.A. It would be a radical disappointment. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the way that it's been talked up, that they're, they're going to have to win playoff games. Uh, recent podcast from uh, two of the local media uh, members, one Vinny Bonsignore, who just joined the Athletic L.A., uh, called it a championship roster. I don't I don't know what that means. But if you've got a championship roster and you don't even come close to winning a championship, that's a pretty obvious failure.
0: Yeah, of teams that have improved their DVOA, 30 percentage points are better, of which the Rams, of course, are a part of. There are 42 teams in the sample since 1987 for Football Outsiders. 73% of teams declined based on their previous year. Only a quarter of them, 26.2%, actually improved their, uh, their overall win total. So by and large, you know, the, the, the stars say you're going to decline a little bit. The question is how much now the next question of course is, is the reason that part, the reason you've been able to maybe think about those outside expectations is because of the, the amount that you're paying your quarterback. Sure. And the amount you're paying a your quarterback means that you can go out and get a ridiculous amount of acquisitions, whether that be through the draft, uh, through draft picks, or in terms of signing players like a and Sue, when you really should be paying maybe Aaron Donald, uh, you were able to attract a lot of talent. So of the players that you've signed or acquired which ones are you most excited about and which ones are you least excited about?
2: The, the one I'm certainly most excited about is in and Sue, but a close second. And maybe the one that's harder to predict is going to be Brandon cooks, right? Uh, the Rams went after him last season and couldn't really make a deal happen by the time they got too close to the preseason. So they ended up turning around and, and found a deal with the Buffalo bills for Sammy Watkins to upgrade. Cause they didn't have a wide receiver one on the roster. Um, come back around this year, they make the deal for Cooks happen. They've already signed him to an extension. Uh, but I, I don't know if he's going to be able to have the kind of statistical con- consistent output that he had with New Orleans and New England, if only because the Rams have way too many weapons. There's just there's too many hands in this cookie jar. you got Brandon Cooks, Robert Woods, Cooper Cup, the tight ends, however that works, Todd Gurley, and the wide receiver depth. So I don't know that they're going to be able to get him the volume of what he was getting uh, before arriving in L.A., and maybe something not necessarily as depressive a statistical output as Sammy Watkins, but something where somebody who's had three 1,000-yard seasons doesn't get one with the Rams. What does that mean? How does that play into people's assessment of whether or not it was worth it to send off a first-round pick? just to be able to get into the front of the line for free agency bidding on him, right? Because that's essentially what it was. For Indomican Sue. it's the fit. The Rams' run defense was the poorest aspect of the team last year. When you add and Sue to put him alongside Aaron Donald, and as good as Alec Ogletree was, as athletic as he was, he was a real legitimate deficiency in run defense in an inside linebacker position in the 3-4, and didn't really fit what Wade Phillips' defense is trying to do. And so the Rams were able to move his salary, which in and of itself was a weird saga, Oscar. They signed him in October to one of the biggest inside linebacker contracts in the NFL. And then five months later, find a trading partner for him. Uh, That one in and of itself, we could probably do a deep dive on a podcast for. But it's one of those things where they upgrade the run defense. You replace Sammy Watkins with somebody like Brandon Cooks. Uh, that hopefully leads to a better marriage. And then you bring in Marcus Peters and Akib Talib. It's uh, one of the more fantastic uh, off-seasons I've seen before a team even gets to the draft.
0: Are you not worried about the, the dream team effect? Because, you know, of course, the last time we had a dream sure. team, Philadelphia Eagles, they had a lot of players. It, it's while we would love to say that it's easy to transplant a player and sustain that level of performance, I don't know that it always happens. and right. And environments change. Schemes change. And all of that, I think that you have less to worry about that when it comes to Talib. But when it comes to some of the other players, you know, you're asking Nambakan Sue to play a position that is not foreign to him, but is not his ideal position. Right? He's going to be basically playing nose tackle in, in the 3-4. And, and so now it's like, okay, is, is that stuff going to translate? Can you count on that consistent production, changing teams and changing schemes?
2: I wouldn't count on it going into week one, but I think what I'd count on, number one, is Wade Phillips. Um, somebody with his track record, I think, and the way that he was able to adjust last year with the talent that he was given um, suggests that that even if they don't come out of the gate uh, looking like the kind of, whether we want to call them a dream tournament or whatever, um, the, 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 the caliber of team that I think people are expecting them to be week one, they've got time to figure it out and to improve on whatever mistakes they make early on. Uh, I think the biggest aspect, though, when when you talk about a dream team and not necessarily what really brought down the Philadelphia team, but what I'm most worried about with this team is injuries, is health. Uh, This has been the healthiest team in the NFL the last two years. They were the only team in the NFL that had their starting offensive line, all five uh, members, throughout the entire season. Uh, They would have started every game if they hadn't sat for our Week 17 contest where we sat the starters before the playoff game. So, the If there's a plexiglass effect that I'm most worried about, it's not necessarily the caliber of their performance. It's health and readiness uh, where they didn't lose a lot of guys, a lot of starters um, to injury last year. And if that's something that happens on the offensive line uh, in the secondary, that's something that could really have an oversized effect that I don't think has been uh, touched upon enough by the media, at least at this point. I mean, it's still, what, August 14th. But it's one of those things where I really worry the plexiglass effect could happen first when it comes to the injury report and not necessarily the uh, quality of the play.
0: So the last team to rank in the top five in Football Outsiders oh, adjusted games lost for three straight years yep. was the 07-09 Tennessee Titans. Oh no, no, no other that. team, yeah, no other team's been able to do that, dude. It, it, three straight years, your AGL has been ridiculously low, and and I think you're right. I think if you're going to regress to the mean, you're probably going to get some kind of an injury. Uh, because, but at the same time, you know, you, kind of hope that the depth that you've established, um, is able to supersede that. And I say you very specifically, because I clearly don't hope that, that you get the injury luck. As a matter of fact, I hope that that the Niners get the injury luck and
2: that all the injuries we're going to see happen in the preseason. I thought it was going to be 1976 Hufflepuff. They went, they had 248 in the house cup. If I have my standings, right. But the next year, right. the, the next year they were 444 because of Jonathan Bagman. I don't know if you've seen his highlights. Bagman was ridiculous. He was a pure talent. Bagman
0: went crazy on the league. Uh, and, you know, Gryffindor finished second. Uh, Slytherin finished fourth. Uh, Ravenclaw, my house, personally, finished third. Uh, but it's okay. Ravenclaw went on a run uh, a few years
2: after that. I need, to learn, I, I need to learn more uh, about these <laughs> houses because I think, I think we need a realignment of the conferences. We need a new house. It's been, they haven't looked at this in years. How long have they had these four houses and they haven't done any kind of conference realignment? There's been no expansion houses. Come on, man.
0: Man, they're still running the wing T. That's, that's how, that's how they're running it. Uh, but let's, let's talk really quickly about Brandon Cooks. Because you mentioned Brandon Cooks as a replacement for Sammy Watkins. Uh, and that's going to be, uh, I think, a change that sure. is going to be interesting because when you think about Brandon Cooks and his pro football focus grade, not great, 70.9, which is, you know, it's above average, sure, uh, but it's not in that same kind of superstar area that you would expect for the amount that you gave up for Brandon Cooks. Now, is Brandon? we know that the wide receiver performance is highly correlated to your quarterback, and Brandon Cooks has had the benefit of playing with Drew Brees and playing with Tom Brady, who are... Two of, I think, the greatest active quarterbacks uh, in football currently, if not two of the greatest active quarterbacks that are playing and have played in the last 25 years. So is Brandon Cooks going to take a step back or is McVay going to be able to utilize him in in the way that he probably should be utilized or can be utilized with a quarterback that's better than Jared Goff?
2: Well, I mean, quarterback that's better than Jared Goff. Two words. Sean Mannion. He's sitting right there on the depth chart. He's been waiting for four years. Um, and then we saw him in the last preseason game and he looked absolutely horrible. Um no, I was you're gonna just, say
0: you're on the manion train for a second, <laughs> no, I'm I thought you you're serious. No, 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 no. Not at all.
2: By the opposite. Um no, I mean I'm excited to see how Jared Goff develops. The thing about Brandon Cooks is he's got a very specific role that it's obvious they want to carve out for Cooks, which is to work him downfield. They've got all this stuff that they can use underneath Cooper Cup. Todd Gurley, the tight ends, they've got to clear space. And I think if you look at Sean McVay's offense, one of the things that he did with Sammy Watkins was use him deep down the sideline and deep on some skinny posts. I think part of the problem was Watkins wasn't always as committed when he wasn't the first read. And the problem was a couple times, Jared Goff threw it anyway, and either Watkins would be behind Or he hadn't really exploded through his route because as the second or third read, he wasn't as committed as to when he was the first read. And I think that's why they were comfortable moving on, even though he's got a ton of promise, which is why the Chiefs signed him to the contract that he did uh, to quite a bit of criticism. I think the thing for Cooks is he's got a history there where if and I got to assume that this is the case because they've been pursuing him for so long and Cooks has been on board with this is that they want to use him downfield frequently. Uh, whether as a decoy or as a target man with some more frequency than they did with Watkins to open things up for underneath. So I, I don't, I don't know that necessarily it it'll be the fantasy uh, play that a lot of people are hoping he is, especially given his last three years. And like you mentioned, he's got you know a resume that involves two of the greatest quarterbacks in the history of the league. And Jared Goff's just not there yet. Do, do I think he's on track to potentially get to become a top tier quarterback? I do. But he's, you know, he's started 22 regular season games. I don't, I don't think we know really what Jerry Goff is yet. That's what's going to make this really interesting is maybe this is the first chance that we get to really make a decent decision about what kind of quarterback Jerry Goff is going to be because he's got somebody like Brandon Cooks, for better or for worse.
0: So when I think about the other additions, of course, we've talked about them a little bit, but Indomitian Sioux is the the part that looms large on the team, especially given the the interior guard play the Niners have have put on display. And I I say put on display in a very negative way, considering the guards that we've had in San Francisco to date now Laken Tomlinson of course is improving former first round pick uh, but then you've got the other right guard which is unsettled Mike Person seems to be the the leader in the clubhouse at, at starting right guard mostly because Josh Garnett can't stay healthy uh, and Jonathan Cooper is returning from injury right. but when you look at, at when you stare down the specter of Aaron Donald and, and Dominican Sue why haven't the Rams paid Aaron Donald when he is universally considered to be one of the top 3 Defensive players in football. Sure. Even if you want to argue about where he is one, two or three and positional value and stuff like that, he still is by far the best at his position and one of the best players on defense. Why is the team comfortable with paying and and Sue, you know, what they pay him, 14 million? Right. But they're not OK with with paying Aaron Donald that.
2: So uh, I would say three things uh, and, and they they are definitely comfortable paying him that they're going to they're going there's going to be leaks of offers. If it doesn't happen, there's been some rumors that it's going to get done this week, um, it, whether or not it does. It, I would expect if it doesn't, we're going to hear some more specifics. I've seen twenty one million. I've seen twenty three million uh, average per year, but. The Rams are going to be willing to pay him, but there, I think there are three things that make this unique. Number one is the, the, the extremity of the contract. This isn't, this isn't a guy who's getting paid uh, in the middle of his position market, or even like Todd Gurley, who they just almost doubled the position market for. He said, Todd Gurley is going to make about $10 million less per year than Aaron Donald. Um, so you're talking about somebody that's resetting the non- he's going to be the highest paid non-quarterback in the league. Uh, at a Hall of Fame level in the middle of his career. So the scope of this contract puts a lot of pressure on both sides uh, to get as much as they can. Number two is the, the fact that the Rams have all the leverage here. They've got Aaron Donald under contract on his fifth-year option this year. They could franchise tag. Because the franchise tag essentially pays you the average of the top five salaries and then just gives you a raise, Aaron Donald's worth the number one salary at his position. So if you just pay him an average of the top five, that's paying him less than he would make on the market anyway. And so they've got him tagged up for essentially the next three years, four years if they did three tags in a row if they wanted to, at less than what his market rate would be. Uh, And the third factor, the reason why it matters that it it could be that long, is the fact that Aaron Donald just isn't that young of a player. The fact that he's uh, been in the league for five years, he came out at a pretty advanced age, kind of like Cooper Cup, as compared to guys like Brandon Cooks, who came in with a lot of years left in his college career. Aaron Donald just turned 27. So if the Rams were able to keep him under contract for three years, he wouldn't be able to see his first market contract if he was three years old. So all the leverage is on the side of the Rams. Donald knows this is maybe his only major payday. He's not going to get what Dominic and Sue got, where he went out and got a payday, gets a one-year deal to come play with the Rams, and then re-hits the market. This is Aaron Donald's one chance to get paid, capital letters P-A-I-D. And so he's got to do the most of what he can possibly do to get the best contract, including holding out last year, including holding out this year, and leaking rumors that he will refuse to play a single down until he gets a new contract. But the Rams also know that they've got to make this happen in a way that isn't so exorbitant that it hurts the other contracts on the team. If we're talking about the difference between $3 million versus $7 million between what the Rams are offering and what Aaron Donald's demanding, that's not the most overwhelming difference, but that can have an effect on what you're trying to do when you sign guys like Todd Gurley, when you've got LaMarcus Joyner on a franchise tag, when you're going to have to start thinking about a Jared Goff contract extension and then replacing some of the guys that you're going to let go over the next two, three years. Um, it's, It's a relatively unique situation where you've got a major contract that has to get done, The team's in absolute control of the situation, and Aaron Donald has this one shot at making the most that he can. It's it's pretty unique, but uh, we're going to have to see. If it does happen soon, if it happens this week or soon thereafter, I think we're going to see a pretty historic deal that's going to reset the market heading towards the new CBA after 2020.
0: In your mind, is Aaron Donald less valuable to your team than Todd Gurley? No.
2: But but I've I've been on record being pretty anti running back for a long long time. So no, and, I
0: have too. And and yeah. this is why I asked the question, right? Because I mean, it, we've uh, on the podcast we've talked lots about positional value, and defensive tackle and running back are some of the lower kind of value positions compared to other positions at large. I mean, obviously quarterback being the highest, and then you get into coverage defenders, and then you get into pass rushers, pass protectors, anything that affects the passing game is incredibly valuable. And we know that Jer- that the only reason that Todd Gurley is going to get the contract or be even considered for the type of contract that he got was because of his value in the passing game. Right. But even then, I think about what Aaron Donald does as a player and how valuable, how good he is compared to his other peers and how relatively frequent you can find the type of skill set that you can get with someone like a Todd Gurley. I mean, I look even at, at a Jarek McKinnon. Let's say Jarek McKinnon is like, of the player that Todd Gurley is at the, at the value at which we're paying Jarek McKinnon. Could that savings not then get you both Aaron Donald and Jarek McKinnon, as opposed to paying Todd Gurley, what you paid him, which reset the running back market, which no one wanted to do. And then now have to look down the specter of maybe having a low ball, the best player on defense at a position that, especially for Wade Phillips could be a
2: significant value add. Like what's the logic there? Well, I think the main logic is kind of what you alluded to with the Jared Goff contract. We actually had a good piece. Uh, one of my writers today, Meissen, uh, had a write-up on. What it, what it really is about is that the Rams have so much cap space next year but the year after, they have so much cap space that they can do all of this. They can keep Todd Gurley. They can keep Aaron Donald. They're going to have enough room for Jared Goff. The question is, where do you start to fill in some of the cracks? Uh, the offensive line probably being first and foremost. The, the other aspect is kind of what I, I alluded to earlier. With all the trades that they made, they traded a second-round pick for Sammy Watkins. They traded uh, two picks for to Tlaib. They traded two picks for Marcus Peters and they traded a first round pick for Brandon cooks. So that not only, and as well as the Jared Goff trade where they traded up to number one to go get him from the Tennessee Titans back in 2016, right? So all of those draft picks together, number one, you're missing out on a ton of talent that now you're you're probably going to have to figure out a way to sign in free agency which is more expensive or rely on some lesser draft picks, day 3 guys, UDFA's, that kind of thing in order just to to fill out the roster. But B is the 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 market inefficiency of having what might have been a lot of talented guys on those rookie contracts. Now, instead of, you know, if they let's say Jared Goff had fallen to them where they were in the 2016 NFL draft, they would have had a second and third round pick going into the third year. Last year, we would have had a first round pick now coming into a second year. This year, we'd have a first and second round rookie pick uh, all on rookie deals, which would be much less expensive than having to go out and fill those positions on the market. So it's one of those things where they've got this window where they can make it all happen. The problem is that the cost, the bill, is going to come due over the next two, three years. How they get through that, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's such the the scope of that challenge is really, really daunting. I think the one good thing I would say is that since Les Snead came aboard as general manager in 2012, the Rams have done a really fine job at drafting. Obviously, the big miss that they had was Greg Robinson back in 2014. You could all, also argue, obviously, Tavon Austin, but the Rams had an opportunity to move away from that and gave him a contract extension. Again, that gets back to the like Ogletree deal and some of this dysfunction between the contract negotiation team, which is separate than less need in the scouting side, which handles the draft and some of the, the trades. Uh, but overall, what they're really looking at is this window where they can still do all of this pretty comfortably. They just, they don't need to answer these questions. Now they have to answer them by filling out the rest of the roster over the next two years. And I really don't know how that's going to go.
0: I mean, I just saw and tweeted out a clip where uh, Reuben Foster was able to cover Tavon Austin on a a crossing route over the field and and get the PBU. I'm pretty sure Dave Austin was not a good draft decision. All things considered.
2: Makes me, it makes me a little sad to think about old Tay Austin. Think about the, think about the good days with dear leader, Jeff Fisher. You remember those, you remember those days you could, you could sit out on your back porch and set your clock to seven wins. It was, it was a good time. That was a, that was a better America back then Oscar. How
0: did you celebrate Jeff Fisher month from July 9th, seven, 9th to August 8th, eight and eight.
2: How'd you solve that month? What'd you do? I always found it a little insulting that we <laughs> that that we extended it to August eighth because eight and eight was not something that was an option for us. We were we never won eight games with Jeff Fisher, and we barely won seven uh, a couple times. Really. So yeah we, that's so we, funny i know so i when everybody would say happy jeff fisher day on august 8th i was like wait a second that's not that's that's old jeff fisher new jeff fisher is july 9th but i do like the fact that we're giving him a month uh i celebrated it mainly by staying in the now uh i have my new mantra my new uh, what's it called Namyoko yoko renge my chance my mantra is that i stay within the mcveigh the mcveigh experience and it keeps me centered and it keeps my chakra aligned
0: Man, when I look at your draft picks uh, before we talk, because I want to get into Jared Goff, because I feel like that's going to be a, a good, fruitful discussion. Let's talk. about I, these draft I, picks. I just want to point
2: out uh, f- direct quote. I want to get into Jared Goff. You said that this is your podcast. Those are your words. Keep going.
0: That would not be the weirdest sex joke we've made on this podcast. That's, uh, that's going to be pretty tame. I'm just going. You, you've seen our drinking game. We have a Johnson rule. We have, li- we have a literal Johnson rule in the drinking game. That was, that's, my, my listeners have come to expect this. I'm actually bummed I didn't do uh, your draft picks or Harry Potter characters because your <laughs> third round pick is Joseph Noteboom.
2: Oh, the Note Bloomer! He's gonna be. Oh fun. my
0: god, that is incidentally awesome. Uh, but Obanaya Okoronkwo, well done. Love that dude. I, I love that dude. We did. Uh, we wanted the Niners to draft him as a potential like late round edge guy. Y'all got him in the fifth round. I think he's gonna be uh, a solid producer. Not gonna be a, a star by any stretch, but. He's gonna be a solid death player for a long time. I think that was a good a good draft pick. I was looking at your your draft picks though, and you got obviously 2016 was a big year. Uh, you got Jared Goff, Pharaoh Cooper, uh, and, you know Cooper Cup later. Apparently, you love the uh, hard Cs. C- c- uh, but you know y- your draft picks, I think, uh, have not been. Uh, you've you've hit where you needed to hit. All right, Todd Gurley, Jared Goff. Whether or not he's a hit, we'll talk about here sure. in a minute. Uh, Cooper Cup. Josh Reynolds? I'm not sure. I mean, once you start getting into like the Gerald Everett's of the world and the Tyler Higbees and the Rob Havenstein's, I mean, can you really say that you've drafted spectacularly or have you just hit on the players you needed to hit on like Todd Gurley and Jared Goff and and maybe then got some value in Cooper Cup and then, of course, Aaron Donald?
2: I think that's fair. Maybe maybe it's one of my biases where coming out of the last uh, era where we did not draft spectacularly, where we drafted spectacularly, but we drafted spectacularly badly, um, that, that maybe it's a bit of that juxtaposition where when you go from that to the kind of era that we've had under Snead, it seems maybe better than it is. But yeah, I'd, I'd argue that overall, the Rams have done a really good job at supplying talent. I think probably the last couple of years under Jeff Fisher, they wasted a lot of it, obviously. But you, you talk about the right side of the line, Jamon Brown, Rob Havenstein, those guys were from the same draft. Todd Gurley, Jared Goff, the tight ends. And yes, we need to see more from that position. But McVay's history with tight ends and his production that he's been able to get out of them before he arrived with the Rams suggests that that's going to happen. On the defensive side, you've got Aaron Donald. You've got Michael Brockers. You've got uh, uh, LaMarcus Joyner and John Johnson at the back. Um, that Yes, they've cropped up a lot of guys like to Talib, Marcus Peters, Brandon Cooks uh, in trades, and then filled in free agency, especially last year. Last year in free agency, they went out and got Robert, Robert Woods. They got Sammy Watkins in the trade. Andrew Whitworth, starting left tackle. John Sullivan, starting center. Nikel Roby Coleman, starting Uh, slot corner. They had a phenomenal year last year in free agency to fill out the holes and and, and do it really well um, that coupled with what they had done in the draft to put together a roster that was capable of going 11-5, and maybe could have won 12 if we had played that last game uh, without worrying about the playoffs. But uh, overall, I would say if, if, if I have to have confidence in the front office's drafting ability moving forward when I worry about the roster, that's something I do have confidence in. I think where I get a little bit more worried is simply the sheer scope, the, the size, the extent to which they're going to have to answer how many questions they're going to have to answer and the rate they're going to have to answer them at the next two years. But overall, yeah, I, I am pretty pleased with the, the state of the draft, uh, uh, at least as far as uh, less needs been uh, performing since 2012.
0: All right, so let's switch gears a bit and let's talk about Jared Goff, because if there's one thing we know about teams, it's that they can cover up a lot of deficiencies as long as their quarterback is good. I think another team in the NFC West exhibits this quite well, and it's the Seattle Seahawks. They have an abysmal offensive line that is pretty much staffed by defensive linemen at this point, point. Uh, and, and you've got a quarterback, though, that is able to make that team rise above irrespective of whatever talent deficiencies they may have. So my question to you is when you, look at, when you look at Jared Goff, his rookie year, he was considered, he had one of the worst rookie campaigns in NFL history. Yeah. It was just bad. I don't know that it was Alex Smith bad, but it was pretty bad. Like when you think of Alex Smith's first year, one touchdown, the last game he played, 11 INTs, statistically, Jared Goff was not too far off from that. He just had more games and, and more touchdowns. And yet, when you think of his second year, he took one hell of a leap forward as the rest of the Rams team did. So would you say that you have an elite quarterback in Jared Goff?
2: Uh, for 2017, no. For 2018, probably not. I think the, the question is, yeah, again, he's only started 22 games. He's 23 years old. He's going to turn 24 in a couple weeks in uh, October. Um, I think the question is 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 he capable of becoming one, and that I think the answer is yes. I think he's on that kind of a trajectory, given his skill set. He's got a he's got a phenomenal skill set that got completely misapplied his first year. I still think you're being a little nice. I guess yeah, he did have five touchdowns, but uh, uh, that rookie year was really 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 bad. And yeah, Alex Alex Smith was horrendous too. But Jared Goff played one decent half in seven games that rookie season. The team went 0-7. The rest of the offense was horrible. The offensive line was disgusting. Um, But, yes, there was a giant rebound last year. I think the thing that's difficult when we're trying to isolate, whether it's Todd Gurley, Jared Goff, one of the individual wide receivers, is that you had so much go on in a single offseason, hiring Sean McVay, new coaching staff, Three new wide receivers, Sammy Watkins, Robert Woods, Cooper Cup, new backup tight end, new third tight end, new starting left tackle, new starting center. You had so much go on and all of it clicked, at least to the point, like you talked about earlier with the DVOA and the other football outsider metrics, that they completely turned around the offense before week one. Going into week one against the Indianapolis Colts, they had already fixed the offense. And, and I don't know that I've ever seen it to the, to that extent, to go from as bad as they were in 2016 to as good as they were last year. I don't think I've ever seen that. What's difficult then is to isolate Jared Goff specifically as a part of that. I know we can't say he's an elite quarterback yet. He's just not there. I do know that he's got great support staff around him in terms of personnel and in terms of coaching. And I do know that he's gotten better as times go goes on. He was a better quarterback at the end of the year than he was at the beginning. What I think is interesting is one of the things we saw just a little bit last year was that they allowed him to take on a little bit more difficulty and complexity in the offensive scheme. If you go back to the early games last year, he was really running a one-read offense where, and I know there was a lot written about this last year where Sean McVay was bringing him to the line and they would talk over the headset about what they were seeing and how they were going to isolate which space they wanted to attack. Essentially just looking at one space and saying, look, if the linebacker crashes, you know, you've got Cooper cup on the slant. If the safety drops, you know, you've got Robert Woods going to the sideline, those kind of things where you really, really, really simplified it. So all he had to look at was one area and know, okay, this is what happens. I'm going to this guy. That's it. Uh, reportedly it's been much more complex this preseason and they're going to give him a little bit more free reign to to run through more things and to make more reads and to work the field more um, hopefully that'll give Brandon Cooks like we were talking about earlier a little bit more sincerity in the passing game than what Sammy Watkins offered because he just wasn't committed a hundred percent of the time on a hundred percent of the place and if Brandon Cooks can do that and they let Jared Goff maybe try a little bit more, I think this will be the first chance where we really see if he's up to that kind of challenge. And then as long as the Rams are able to make it to the postseason, what he's able to do when it matters most, because last year the team came up short. He didn't have his best game against Atlanta, but it was really a team performance, especially in run defense where they really failed. And and whether it's Jared Goff or Sean McVay or the 2018 Rams specifically, we're not going to measure this team by what they do in the regular season unless they don't make the postseason. And if they do, it's going to be determined by, uh, by how they win games, if they do, and who's responsible for it. That's really what we're looking at with Jared Goff. So I'm absolutely excited to see what he can do with Sean McVay this year because I think he can be an elite quarterback, but he's not there yet.
0: Jared Goff, based on his PFF passer rating, or not passer rating, but his passing grade, which is fairly stable year to year. It's not as stable as performance from a clean pocket, which I'll all mention here in a minute. But his PFF passer grade was closer to Josh McCown, ranked 34th overall, than it was to Jimmy Garoppolo, ranked third overall. Right. So, I mean, he, he, is, he is, at this point, even though the, the stats would beguile you, he's very much an average quarterback. When you, when you look at the most consistent thing that he can do, or, or that kind of predicts year to year, which is performance from a clean pocket, when you look at his ranking, he was 12th, which is, you know, just, just north of average. And, and I think that Jared Goff still has something to prove as a quarterback sure. because I would put Jared Goff right now as the like when you think of the quarterbacks in the NFC West, rank them real quick. You've got Garoppolo, Goff, whomever Arizona is starting and Russell Wilson. Where do you rank
2: him? You know, I, it's interesting. I that, this is probably where I differ from Rams fans is I would probably have Garoppolo above Goff and probably have Russell Wilson still at first. Here's the difference though is that Jimmy Garoppolo's got three years on Jared Goff, so it's a bit of a, it's a bit of an unfair comparison. What the comparison should be, if all things were equal, is Jimmy Garoppolo this year to Jared Goff in 2021, right? And that that's why I that's why I'm probably more bullish on golf than a lot of non Rams fans. It's because the trajectory suggests that if he continues to soak up this tutelage and get to grow and he, he's going to get what Jimmy Garoppolo didn't get in his early career, which is the playing time and the opportunity, the moments to be able to do some of the stuff that we associate with more elite quarterbacks to win games late, to have those game winning drives, to be able to take over uh, things in the fourth quarter and to win playoff games. Um, and so. You know, would would I have Garoppolo in front of Golf now? Yes. If if you put Garoppolo on the Rams and we put Jared Goff on the 49ers, would it be a pretty you know stark difference in terms of how that would affect the both teams? I think so. But would I rather have Golf moving forward than Garoppolo? Given, and I know this is a pretty what nerdy answer. I don't know which house that would be. Would that be a would that be a Raven? Is it Ravenclaw? I don't even know the name. That's right. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's a right. Is, is it
2: a nerdier thing to say? What I like is that the fact we have him under his rookie contract with the 50-year option, and we have some time to be able to figure out: okay, how, how do we make sure that we raise him, right? As, our, as our, young, our young little Jared, who has no idea where the sun rises and sets, we're going to have to help this guy grow as an NFL quarterback. And I think we've got an incredible situation around him to do that. I love the skill set, and I like the idea that he could become one of those guys. Even if he's ranked 12th now, I don't have a problem with that because if he makes an improvement, gets the 10, and then next year gets the top five, when he's in, by the time we get to 2020, 2021, he might be like Jimmy Garoppolo, top five, top three in some of those metrics where you're looking at it and saying, okay, now that the Rams have Jared Goff where they need to be, they don't need all this other talent all across the roster because they have a guy that can raise the rest of the team. All right,
0: well, let's get to the lightning round, because the lightning round, I think, will help dist- uh, distill some of the thoughts we've had, as well as uh, get some information about the Rams and how you feel about the Rams for 2018. So I'm going to throw out a question. You tell me the, the kind of over-under that you think or the player that you think fits in that question. And one of these questions is not going to be football-related, just because I want to know what everyone's favorite cheeseburger is. Uh, so oh, good. Number, question number one, uh, who do you think will be the offensive player of the year this year, if we're excluding quarterbacks for the
2: Rams, go. I'm going to go with Roger Saffold, where last year he was one of the best players. I had to injure Whitworth more so than Todd Gurley for most of the year. Um, but Whitworth is at an age where I'm really worried about him. Uh, Jared Goff still on the ascendancy. Todd Gurley is a running back, is requiring a lot of other things to be in place for him to flourish. And Roger South is one of those guys who's in his peak years. He's been healthy. He's been underappreciated. This is the kind of season where I could see him being a clear MVP on the offensive side.
0: Interesting. Going with the uh, alignment. That's a, that's a good choice. I like it. All right. Best cheeseburger you've ever had.
2: Go. That is really hard because I like burgers. I've had burgers all over the world. Me too. This
0: is why I ask everyone this question. Uh,
2: The best cheeseburger I've ever had. There used to be a place. Maybe it's nostalgia. See, that's part of the problem is that when a lot of times when I think about food, it's not even the food that was perfect. It was like the situation and whatnot. Uh, There used to be a place here in Dallas called Gazebo Burgers that had a perfect mushroom Swiss burger. Love a Juicy Lucy. Love some water burger. Love a hatch chili burger. I'm one of these guys. We talk about burgers quite a bit uh, at her Times I'm on the staff. I'm one of those guys. I'm almost like a burger hippie, where I love all burgers. All burgers are good burgers, Oscar. Every burger needs a home. Where I, I don't, I don't know that I have one favorite because I love so many different burgers, and I'm open to so many interpretations of the burger. You know what? I'll give you one. I'll give you a really, 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 really damn good burger, Le Diplomat in Washington D.C. I know it's a bit of a fancier French restaurant, but they make this famous burger. It's called the American Burger, Le Burger American. That is uh, maybe in terms of just a pure, the pure components of a cheeseburger that make it perfect, they do every single one of them great. Uh
0: I love that it is a joint in DC that apparently names their American things in French. It's DC. Yeah, well, you know, what are you gonna do? All right. Defensive player of the year for the Rams. Go. I'll say Aaron Donald.
2: That one's pretty easy.
0: Yeah, that that one is pretty easy. Although uh I'm surprised he didn't go with one of the uh one of the new DBs, uh Akib Talib or Marcus Peters.
2: I think it's one of those things where people aren't going to throw to them that much. I think they're going to be worried, and they're going to have to find uh, better spots to be able to pick at. you got some inexperience among the linebackers. The Rams are going to have three new starting linebackers this year because Robert Quinn, Alec Ogletree, and Connor Barwin are all gone. So we've got two new starters on the edge. If we're, if we're going out of a 3-4 base, uh, you're going to have to have another inside linebacker next to Mark Barron. Maybe that's Rameek Wilson. Um, so I, I don't know. If, if you're figuring out how to attack the Rams— I don't know that you want to really go after a keep to and Marcus Peters when they're one up against your wide receivers.
0: Yeah. That bump and run is going to be pretty nasty is all yeah. I'm saying. Uh, all right. Player most likely to make their first pro bowl. Their very first pro bowl.
2: Go the Marcus Joyner, John Johnson.
0: Uh, is that one player or a Harry Potter character?
2: They've fused. They're two human beings, but they're one defensive back soul at the safety position. Now, I I can see both of them doing it. They're both phenomenal. They have pretty uh, similar roles. Uh, LaMarcus Joyner is incredibly physical. Johnson uh, has great athleticism for the position and behind those cornerbacks. I think it's another one of those things where if teams are avoiding the cornerbacks, that's going to give Joyner and uh, Johnson more opportunity to make some plays in the passing game, and they're both, for safeties, really capable in the run defense too. you got to pick one, Joyner or Johnson joiner johnson um i'll take lamarcus joiner because he's on the franchise tag and he probably won't be here next year and uh lamarcus is a great first name
0: fair very very fair he could have been from lsu he could have gone Uh, the diplomat it's french for lamarcus (laughs) that was a good one that was good all right rookie of the year go
2: None. No, I, I, I guess John Kelly. Um, this is a, I took John Kelly for our fantasy guy. Cause I had to, uh, he's the running back that we took on day three out of Tennessee. Um, the ramp. He's the rookie of the year. Then what happens to your star running back? Like that's, nothing, that's a well, hell of a pick. And that's the thing is nothing. He's still going to be Todd Gurley, but they've clearly been trying to get somebody to keep Gurley fresh. They signed Lance Dunbar last year in free agency, but he got hurt early on and just kind of derailed his season. And once they started using Gurley on third downs, they were like, damn, this guy's really good in the passing game, Uh, but they went out and drafted uh, John Kelly. I think it's clear there's an impetus to be able to have some talent, not necessarily to take snaps away from Gurley, but to keep him fresh throughout the year, to keep him healthy going into the playoffs. Remember Gurley injured his ACL his last year in college, so it's not like he's got a huge, long history of healthy football behind him. Uh, I I could see John Kelly being a guy that does a lot in limited opportunities not anything like what Alvin Kamara got with the Saints, but almost doing the same with less, much less, I think, but could be one of those guys that has uh, a really high efficiency rate where he gets one-third of one-quarter of the carries that Kamara got but maybe, you know, one fourth, one fifth of the production, which could be really valuable for a guy that maybe just takes a couple snaps from Gurley, you know, five eight snaps a game to keep him fresh and doesn't really slow down the offense. But this wasn't the class that's going to have great rookie of the year candidates. They spent their first pick the first pick we had was in the third round. That was Joe Noteboom. He's a reserve offensive lineman at this point. Second pick was Brian Allen reserve offensive lineman probably going to play center take over for John Sullivan at some point over the next two years. And then you get into day three and uh, yeah, this isn't a rookie of the year heavy class that we've got if, if anything you could make the case that some of the udfas could be the surprise guys that win uh something like rookie of the year
0: all right over under jared goff's pro football focus passing grade over or under 75 i'll take for over context here. oh you'll oh. take the over for oh, context see, I didn't this even year get contest, but go ahead uh this year his his passing grade was 73.3 yeah. overall grade was 73.8
2: Yeah, I'm going to take over. I think uh, things are going to get better with golf. Uh, I, I don't know that they'll they'll immediately be better week one, week three, week five than they were compared to last year. But I think uh, this is one of those things where I've got a lot more faith in this coaching staff than I did their predecessors. And as much as that pissed off Rams fans to my perceived pessimism under the last administration, I've got a lot of faith in this group to be able to work through things and fine-tune stuff week to week and get the team to perform better. And given the collective talent that they've got on the offensive side and now that they have some capable depth, uh, I, I don't see why that shouldn't be a standard that uh, Gosh should be able to get across this year.
0: All right. And final question, what is your final record prediction for the Rams and where you think their season ends? So it's one thing to say, they're going to go like, you know, 11 or sure. five or 11 to four or whatever, but then like, do they make the super bowl divisional wild card? What's yeah. what's the status?
2: I'm going go to go 11-5. Uh, I mean, the the biggest storyline to me, I think there are two main storylines in the NFL this year. Number one, and this is really the story of the AFC, is whether we're at the end of the line with the Patriots. I don't know if it is, but it feels like it could be, and if things just fall apart for them this year, I could see everybody bailing, and then they they go into Patriots 3.0. On the NFC side it's clearly the fact that you've got a lot of good teams in this conference. Uh, 11 of the 16 teams have been to the playoffs in the last two years. That doesn't include you guys. That there's, there's so much more quality on the NFC side than the AFC, and that doesn't bode well for, for any good team. This is, not, this is not a great year to be a good team. There's too much competition. So for a team like the Rams, I still see them going 11-5, and five, but the pitfalls are going to be wider and deeper. Um, I mentioned the health issue where I think that plexiglass effect is something that could be exactly what it represents where the Rams have been so healthy the last two years that a regression to the mean means they're going to lose some guys. And it, it it might be the case that they get through the season 11 and five, but go into the playoffs. You look at what happened to Michael Brockers in that game where we lost him early on and the run defense clearly suffered because of it. And it was already a pretty below average run defense, uh, so I'm worried about that. I'm comfortable overall with the roster, with the coaching staff, with the trajectory of the team, the fact that we have a young talent like Goff at quarterback that should be able to grow. I think the biggest thing I'm worried about is what we saw last year in the playoffs, that you've got an inexperienced head coach. As much as I love Sean McVay, he's been head coach for one year, and he doesn't have a lot of experience as a, as a, as a coach in general compared to somebody like Wade Phillips. Um, I I worry about what that means in situations that we haven't been in before. I worry about what it means for the general preparation of this team, who, whether it's like the Philadelphia Eagles dream team or other teams that we've seen in other sports kind of like this, that go in not assuming that they're in the playoffs starting in week one, but knowing that they're good enough to get there pretty easily, how that affects their Uh, mentality and their readiness throughout the season. Once they get there, I'm worried that they're not going to get to the NFC championship. If I'm on y'all's podcast, I'm going to go ahead and say that they make the NFC championship. I think they might lose it. uh, Maybe to the Vikings. I think the Vikings are a really damn good team this year, but what I'm, what I'm more concerned about is that they might lose to themselves before that.
0: You heard it here. First, Wade Phillips as a head coach over McVeigh. And that was the key takeaway of that uh, that entire that
2: that entire I moment. I still I still think in the right situation. The, the, the problem was with the Cowboys. The Cowboys are such a unique situation to be a head coach with. I don't think it was a good fit for for who he is as a person, as a coach, and for the roster. I think they were in position to do some better things than what he did with them. I don't think he's interested in being a head coach again, which is kind of sad because I'd love to see him give it another go. But I, I would say this: there there's a good chance. If we're in the fourth quarter, whether it's the divisional playoffs or the NFC Championship, and there's a situation that needs uh, the right mentality from a coach, and, and, and whether that whether that mentality needs to get imposed on the rest of the coaching staff or on the players, that it comes from Wade more so than it comes from McVay. Not necessarily because of his stature, but because he's been there so many times, as, as you know, with the Broncos, with the Falcons back in the day with uh, the Broncos the first time back when he was their head coach in the early nineties, or even with the Eagles before that he's been to these kinds of situations. He's won Super Bowls. He knows it. He doesn't have to act. He doesn't have to act like he's been there before he's been there before he's gone through this and he's done it. And, and as much as that can help Sean McVay as a head coach, sometimes you got to get it directly from him. All
0: right, Joe, that should wrap it up for the uh, preview of the Rams. Thanks so much for coming on, dude. I appreciate it. All right.
2: Homer. Thanks, man.
0: Well, that's a wrap for this week's episode. Thanks again to our two guests, Jeff and Joe, for coming on to the show. And as always, go Niners.